Well, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That's good news. The Lord is come. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, In just a few minutes here, uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 1. Uh, During this season of Advent here in December, uh, we are looking every Sunday at just one biblical text that looked forward to the first Advent or the first arrival of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 2. Last Sunday, we looked at Genesis uh, chapter 22. Uh, Both of those texts ultimately pointing forward to the birth of Christ. And today, we're moving forward in time once again here to Isaiah chapter 40. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started here. Father, we do thank you for every opportunity to open your word. Father, we do believe that in the coming of Jesus, uh, our King has come, that joy has come to this world. Uh, We do believe, Father, that um, all true joy will only be found in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for that gracious gift we as sinners don't deserve. And yet, uh, you graciously sent your own Son, Jesus. We thank you for it, Father. We ask now for your help as we look at your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, did, you, did you ever receive a gift at Christmas uh, that you just did not expect? Uh, I remember as a kid receiving lots of gifts that I just did not expect. You know, as, as a kid, you expect every gift to be some great toy. And I remember one Christmas receiving a gift from my grandparents. The package uh, looked like it was maybe this handheld video game that I really wanted. I was very excited to get this gift from my grandparents. And I opened the package, and lo and behold, it was soap on a rope. Uh, this, this little bar of soap with a rope attached for some reason, so I guess you could hang it around your neck. I, I, I don't know if I really knew at the time even how to shower. <laughs> and if I did, I probably did not use soap. And if I did use soap, well, I could just reach over to the little tray and grab the soap. Not the, the gift I was expecting uh, from my grandparents, this soap on a rope. And And here in Isaiah chapter 40, the Jewish people received a gift that they probably didn't expect. A little background for this passage before we read it. This man Isaiah, he prophesied to the nation of Israel during a very rebellious time in their existence. Earlier in the Old Testament, God had very graciously planted the Jewish people in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. But once they got there, uh, they began to rebel bad against God, uh, stopped obeying God, stopped following God, and God very mercifully sent prophets to the people of Israel to warn them. And and for the first uh, 39 chapters of this book, that's what Isaiah has been doing. Uh, He has been warning the people of Israel to repent, to, to turn back to God and begin to follow God again. But the people of Israel, they just 
won't listen to Isaiah. They won't listen to the other prophets God has sent. So in Isaiah 39, the chapter right before this one, God just announced that Israel would go into exile in Babylon. If you just glance over, you can see chapter 39, verse 5. It said this, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, the king of Israel at the time, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So there was just this statement from God that Israel, because of her sins against God, she would now go into exile. For her sin, judgment, despair for her sin. Isaiah just announced it. And what do we now find just a couple of verses later in Isaiah 40? Not what you would expect. You might expect in Isaiah 40 that you, you would get more judgment, more doom and gloom on Israel. But shockingly, you open this package here called Isaiah 40 and you get this incredibly gracious promise. Now, from God, we'll go ahead and read it, Isaiah 40, verse 1, God now says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway For our God, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. Kind of a shocking passage at that time for the nation of Israel. There are three simple parts to that passage that we'll look at this morning. One, comfort. Two, coming. And three, character. Comfort, coming, character. We'll start with comfort. You know, you you think about this. If you put this in the context of the entire book of Isaiah, the very last thing the Jews probably expected from God at this point in time would have been words of comfort. After 39 chapters of Isaiah warning the people of Israel, and after God has just now said that they would go into exile, the last thing they'd have expected would have been comfort from God. But that's exactly what they get. If you look at verse 1 again, man, it just explodes off the page. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I think God was simply saying there that Israel's exile would one day come to an end. Yes, she will receive the punishment of exile, the judgment for her sin. But God now points beyond the punishment and and says that Israel's warfare will one day be ended. Her iniquity will be pardoned. She will have received more than enough punishment for her sins. And I think God was simply saying there that this exile would one day end. And that's what eventually did happen. Israel, after this point in time right here, she did go into exile into Babylon. About a hundred years or so after Isaiah prophesied it, it happened. But only 70 years after she had been there in exile, well, God began to bring the people of Israel back to the promised land. Her warfare ended, iniquity pardoned, enough punishment, enough is enough. And God wants his people to know right here, before this exile ever happens, that this exile will one day come to an end. God very suddenly, man, quite shockingly here says that he will comfort his rebellious people. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly. To Jerusalem, and man, you don't want to rush past that word comfort there in verse 1. You know, any time in the Bible you see the same word repeated, that is the Bible's way of emphasizing that thing. So when the word here says comfort, comfort, God is saying with emphasis, with a sense of urgency, Comfort my people. Yes, you'll go into exile a judgment for sin. But I will not abandon you. I will be with you in exile. I will comfort you. And I will bring you back home again. Man, that word comfort, when you start to think about it, That word comfort in the Bible has a very rich meaning. You know, you and I in our minds, we hear the word comfort and we tend to think of just kind of this physical ease or this relaxation or, or, or a coziness. Man, I had a hard day at work. It's time <laughs> for some comfort, man. I'm going to sit on the couch and get comfortable. Uh, I will grab the closest blanket, my comforter. Uh, I will have somebody bring me some comfort food, some Minnesota hot dish, right? And I will, um, uh, I will take my ease here on the comfort or on the couch. But, but man, comfort in the Bible is much more than just a physical ease or relaxation or coziness. Comfort in the Bible is the alleviation or the soothing of someone's pain. It's the calming of someone's grief, distress, or despair. You're in some, some serious emotional or mental or, or physical pain in, in your life. You can't see any way out. You're in despair, distress. You're in a deep pit. 
in your life, all you can see is darkness, and someone then comes and soothes your pain, calms your fears, eases your distress, gives you hope in your hopelessness, gives you light in, in your darkness. That's what the Bible means with comfort. Those of you who have lost loved ones, you, you may know what this type of comfort feels like. You know, people, when they give you this biblical type of comfort, they don't even have to say a word to you. It's just their presence with you in your pain. It's their touch, maybe, in your grief. It's their embrace, maybe, at that time. Their gentleness. And it just calms your soul. And that's comfort in a a biblical sense. When my father passed last spring, Molly and I walked into the funeral home in Arizona for his funeral. And the first thing we saw when we walked in was this bouquet of flowers that had been sent from several families here in our church. And we just began to weep. I mean, you're still grieving, but somehow you're comforted just knowing that people you love are with you in your grief, in in your pain. And God says to His people here with emphasis, with urgency, comfort. 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 My people. And when you think of the time here, it's in the midst of their sin. God didn't wait for them to return yet. He speaks it beforehand. Comfort. Comfort my people. I will comfort you. So I'm faithful to do it. God says there in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not in a place to receive tender words. And yet God says, speak tenderly. To Jerusalem, the Hebrew word there for tenderly. It's the same Hebrew word used in the book of Ruth to describe the way Boaz spoke to Ruth, the woman he loved. Boaz spoke tenderly to Ruth. Tender words of love for his future wife. And God now, in the midst of Israel's sin, speaks tenderly to her. Tender words of love for his people. And you've got to stop and consider that for a second. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but God is a tender, comforting God. Shockingly so. Even in the midst of your sin. He remains open towards you. Tender towards you, ready to comfort you the second you turn to him. The prodigal father waiting to embrace his rebellious son. You know, a lot of people, I think many Christians included, picture God as harsh, distant, cold, uncaring. That is not God. God is tender. He's affectionate, he's gentle, he's he's kind, even to the worst of sinners. It's amazing. If you're not shocked by, by the tenderness of God, then you haven't started to see the tenderness of God yet. If it's not scandalizing to you, you don't get it yet. Even to the worst of sinners, he's tender. 
He's caring. He's kind. You know, in Ephesians 4.32, God says this to Christians. God says to us, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. And you know why God tells us to be tender-hearted to one another? Because God wants us to be like Him. And God is so tender-hearted, infinitely so, towards us. God is a God of comfort, ready and willing to comfort those who turn to Him in faith. You know, Paul describes God like this in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He calls Him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions, overflowing with tender comfort, overflowing with tender comfort, ready at the drop of a dime to just lavish tender comfort upon you when you look to Him in faith. God's a tender comforting God. Yes, God is holy and just. And because God is holy and just, God must and He will punish sin like He's going to do to Israel right here. But even in judgment, God remains tender. He remains the God of all comfort, even in the worst of judgment. And it is this kindness of God towards sinners that ultimately leads people to repentance, that leads people to turn to God. Romans chapter 2, you won't turn to God in your judgment if you think He's harsh and cold and distant. But if you know that He's forgiving, He's a God of comfort, He's a tender God. That gives you hope in your judgment that maybe he will receive me if like the prodigal son, I come home to him. And he will. Man, God, he gives this Jew, the Jews here this gift they probably never would have expected at this time. As they head toward exile, this very gracious promise. I will comfort you in exile and bring you home again. And that's the first thing we see here, this comfort. I just encourage you, meditate this week on the comfort of God. Don't rush past that. And even in judgment, He's a God of comfort. It's the first thing we see, the comfort of God. And the second thing we see, coming. God now promises to these Jews here that He will comfort them, not just by bringing them out of exile again, but also then by actually coming to them. At some point in the future. Man, you talk about comfort on top of comfort for people who didn't deserve any comfort. Here it is. After God speaks this initial promise here, verse 1 and 2, that will one day bring these people out of future exile. Well, God now expands the promise to the nth degree, promising now that he will actually then come to Israel an actual visitation of the one true God. If you look at verse 3 again. God now says this, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And, and what was God saying right there? It's pretty simple. God just said, I am coming, Israel. At some point in the future, Israel, after this exile, the glory of the Lord will then be revealed to you. And all flesh will ultimately see it. 
And the glory of the Lord, don't rush past that either. The glory of the Lord in the Bible, it refers to the splendor of God. It refers to the radiance of God himself. Alec Motier says that the glory of God refers to God himself in all his glory. And Isaiah says here that after this exile, well, the very glory of God will be revealed. God himself in all his glory will someday somehow come to Israel. Comfort, comfort my people. Not just because you'll one day come out of exile, but ultimately because the one true God in all his radiant glory will one day visit you. An actual visitation of, the, of God himself. So Isaiah tells him here to get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the highway for our God. Simple picture. Fill in the potholes, man. Remove the obstacles. Clear the road. Because God is coming. The the, the picture there, when when Isaiah talks about the, the lifting up of the valleys, the making low the hills, leveling the uneven ground, making the rough places a smooth plain, that's what people in Isaiah's day did when a king came to town. If the king was planning to visit your town, you did not want your road into your town to be all shabby. (laughs) all kinds of potholes you know minnesota roads after winter you could lose your entire car in there you didn't want that man when the king came to your town you wanted the road into your town to be perfect for the king so the citizens of the town would go out ahead of the king's visit and they would uh, remove the stones they'd fill the potholes they'd flatten the rough areas make the the highway smooth the the president uh, if he ever does come to Woodbury, uh, you don't want potholes, uh, obstacles in the road for the president. It makes your town look bad. It dishonors the president. So you, you fix the road. Or if you don't like the president, I guess you go out at night and dig more potholes. Stay away, president, whatever it is. But back in Isaiah's day, if you loved your king, you went out and you made the road ready for your king and Isaiah says here make the way smooth Israel because God in all his glory is coming to you the glory of the Lord will be revealed and man you read through this passage God wants these people to know that he is definitely going to do these things if you look at verse 5 again Isaiah now says, the the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And he then goes right into this in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And you know, a lot of Christians will take those verses out of context there and just say, well, all flesh is grass, all flesh will die, but the entire word of God will stand forever. And yes, that is a true point. 
That is true. But Isaiah spoke those words in a particular context. He's trying to make a particular point about a particular word of God that will stand forever. And what is the point here? Just connect the dots. Isaiah says in verse 5 that the glory of the Lord will be revealed for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And what particular word of God is Isaiah talking about there that will stand forever? Well, this promise that God just made in verse 5, that his glory would be revealed. Israel, prepare the way, because I'm coming. My glory will be revealed. The mouth of the Lord has now spoken it, and every word of my mouth will stand forever. This promise I just spoke, it will be fulfilled. You remember this guy, George Zimmer? (laughs) Uh, former CEO of the men's warehouse clothing store and all the goofy commercials he was in. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. And the God of the universe has just given his guarantee. He's just guaranteed his promise. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Get ready. Here it comes. I just spoke it. And every word from my mouth will stand forever. It will be fulfilled I guarantee it. And God's guarantee is probably better than George Zimmer's, so that uh, should give you a little bit of hope there. Man, that right there, that is the ultimate comfort of Isaiah 40. That is the ultimate comfort God was giving to Israel here in this passage, telling them that he was coming. The ultimate comfort for them wasn't just that God would someday deliver them from exile. The ultimate comfort for them was that God himself was coming someday visitation from the one true God. That's the second thing in this passage. Number one, comfort. Number two, coming. The final thing here, number three, character. (laughs) We now see here the character of this God who is coming. Who is this God who will someday come to Israel? What's he like? His character? Look at verse 9. God now says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense or His payment before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And we can see right there just a a couple of things about the character of this God who would someday come to Israel. Who is this God? What is he like? What will he be like when he comes? Well, here's the answer right there. Who is this God? He's the one and only shepherd king. One God is, is a king, a conquering king. Behold, verse 10 says, the Lord God comes with might. His arm ruling for him, bringing his reward, his recompense, bringing his, his 
payment, bringing gifts for his people. I am coming to you, Israel, as a conquering king. I'm coming to you in, in might or, or in strength. I will enter on this straight highway that has been built for a king. And I will then establish my rule as king with the power of my own arm, conquering all of my enemies and graciously distributing gifts to all my people who have waited for me in faith. God is a, a king. He's a conquering king but 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 two god is also a shepherd a compassionate shepherd verse 11 there the lord god will tend his flock like a shepherd gather the lambs in his arms carry them in his bosom close to his heart gently leading those lambs that are with young gently leading protecting guarding Even the tiniest, most vulnerable of the little ewe lambs in his flock. Behold your God, Israel, he's coming to you as the one and only shepherd king. But both conquering and yet compassionate, both powerful and yet peaceful, infinitely great and yet infinitely gentle. And man, you, you just pause and think about that. Well, the picture you've just gotten there about God, this shepherd and this king, do you know both of those aspects of God's character are absolutely critical? It's both of those aspects of God's character put together that can give you true comfort. In order for God to give the Jews back then when he came, in order for God to, to give them comfort, in order for God to, to give you true comfort today, He has to be both king and shepherd. He has to be able to conquer, but also infinitely compassionate. Both sides of that coin are critical if someone is to receive comfort. Listen, if God, if God were just compassionate... If he were just compassionate, but he wasn't strong, he wasn't able to conquer his enemies, your enemies. If he was a weak God, that's not going to give you much comfort. Oh God, you know, he's so gentle, he he wouldn't hurt a flea, and he couldn't really hurt a flea. That's not going to give you a lot of comfort. We need a strong God, a king who can conquer with his arm of power. Samuel Stone was an Anglican minister and hymn writer in the 1800s. He pastored in a very rough area on the east side of London. And he heard late one night the cry of a young girl being attacked outside of the church building by three men. And Samuel Stone could have said at that time, I'm just a compassionate shepherd, just a gentle minister. I write some songs, I write some poetry, but protecting young girls from vicious attack, it's just not my calling, it's just not my, my forte. I'm, I'm, I'm just compassionate, but Samuel Stone didn't say that. No, in school, Samuel Stone had learned how to box. 
friend said, a friend of his said that Samuel Stone had the muscles of a prize fighter and the nerves of a violin. He ran outside and with one punch knocked the first guy out. (laughs) Pummeled the second guy and the third guy ran away. And Samuel Stone said later he'd pay five pounds to get hold of his hide. A great pastor. <laughs> you may say, oh man, that's, that's a vicious pastor. I would say that's a pretty good pastor. Protecting a very little vulnerable lamb with his might. And that's what this girl needed at the time. Didn't need just a, a gentle man with compassion, but also a powerful man who could conquer. And it was his ability to conquer that night that gave her great comfort. Samuel Stone went on to write the hymn, uh, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Same hands that wrote that hymn (laughs) pummeled the two guys outside of his church building. So remember that every time you sing that hymn. And listen, God can conquer He is an infinitely powerful, conquering king who can conquer all of his and your enemies, and that should give you some comfort. But on the flip side, if God was just a conqueror, if he was just infinitely powerful, but he wasn't compassionate, he wasn't a a gentle shepherd, he wasn't willing to take his his sheep in his arms, and hold them against his chest near his heart, if he wasn't willing to grab even the youngest, most vulnerable, most overlooked of his little ewe lambs, and hold that little lamb up against his chest, well, that wouldn't give you much comfort. Vladimir Lenin, founder of the Communist Party in Russia in the early 1900s, Lenin said that he was a leader for the common people. He said that he supported the common workers of his country. He said, in many ways, that he was compassionate towards the common people in his country. And yet, they say that Lenin never once visited a factory or set foot on a farm. They say that Lenin was never seen even once in the working class quarters of any town in which he resided. A conquering king, maybe? But he wasn't compassionate. Not willing to enter the the smelly, sweaty lives of his people. And a God like that who could conquer, but he wasn't compassionate. He was a a king, but he wasn't a gentle shepherd. That won't give you much comfort. But God is saying right there, Isaiah 40, that he's both conquering and compassionate. That he's both a mighty king and a gentle shepherd. He's more than willing as a shepherd to enter the the sweaty, the smelly lives of his broken people. He's more than willing to take his sheep in his arms and embrace them. Think about that. The little lambs, the broken wounded, more than willing to draw them up against his his own heart. This conquering king. Also, the compassionate shepherd, the one and only glorious shepherd king. 
You know, if you look closely at Isaiah 40, you look at that passage closely, you see both aspects of God's character portrayed beautifully there in Isaiah's words with just two little comments he makes there about God's arms. In verse 10, Isaiah says that God, God's arm rules. But then in the very next verse, verse 11, he says that God gathers the lambs in his arms. And man, it is that sweet combination of both conquer and compassion. You put those together, that can give you great and lasting comfort in this life and in the next. So there it is, man. That's, that's really that first part, that passage there in Isaiah 40. There it is in three simple parts. Comfort, one. God promises here that in spite of the Jews' rebellion at this time, he will one day comfort them. But two, coming. God will ultimately comfort them by coming to them. And three, character. Who is this God who is coming? What's this God like? Well, he's the one and only shepherd king. And please listen, that right there is what we're celebrating at Advent. We are celebrating the arrival of that one and only glorious shepherd king. You know that text there in Isaiah 40? That text right there, it ultimately pointed forward to the birth of a little baby in Bethlehem. You know, some 700 years or so after Isaiah wrote those words right there, some 700 years after he wrote those words, another prophet then entered the scene there in Israel, a man named John, lived in the wilderness, wore, wore garments of camel's hair, ate locusts and, and honey. And when people asked John who he was, he simply quoted from Isaiah 40. Here it is, John 1, verse 23. John said, I am the voice. Of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And it was 700 years or so after Isaiah wrote those words. But John was now here in Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. To clear up the potholes and remove the obstacles to make the highway smooth for the arrival of God himself. And how did John pave the highway there in Israel? One word, repentance. He simply called people there in Israel to repent, to turn their hearts back to, to, to God. Luke 3, 3 says this, and John went in all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. John goes around and he's simply proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling Israel to turn back to God, their hearts back to God, asking God for mercy. And through that message of repentance, well, John was paving a highway, man. <laughs> he was paving a highway there into Israel for the arrival of God himself. And as soon as John finished paving this highway in Israel, well, just as God promised back in Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord was then revealed in Israel. God himself, in all his glory, 
in a manger. The baby Jesus. Now, not everyone could see at this time the glory of God in the face of baby Jesus. Not everybody could see it. Because the glory of God was veiled to some degree. It was hidden to some degree in in baby Jesus. You know, back in World War II, German spies would put this little thing called a microdot in some of their letters, their correspondence back to uh, the German homeland. You wouldn't notice the microdot in the letter if you didn't know it was there. It looked like just a little period. But if you knew it was there and you pulled the little micro dot off the letter and then you then magnified it, it would contain a full letter of instructions from the spy. Hidden. Veiled. To most people. And that was the glory of God. Hidden. Veiled. In baby Jesus. Veiled to a lot of people. Not everyone could see the glory in Jesus, but many people did see it. (laughs) Even from his birth, man. Just a few days after Jesus was born, his parents, Joseph and Mary, well, they brought him to the temple. And the Bible says this in Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, Waiting for the consolation, or another translation, waiting for the comfort of Israel. That right there is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 40. This man, Simeon. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied there about this future comfort from God. This future appearing in Israel, the glory of God. Well, Simeon was waiting for the comfort, the consolation. He was waiting for the glory of God to be revealed according to Isaiah chapter 40. And Simeon then saw Jesus in the temple with his parents. And Luke 2, 25, 26 says this, This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, he took him up in his arms and blessed Bless God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen the comfort you promised in Isaiah chapter 40. My eyes have seen the revelation of the glory of God Himself. My eyes have seen God Himself in all His glory, wrapped in human flesh in that little baby. Simeon saw the glory. And many other people saw it. John would later write in John chapter 1, he said, the Word was with God in the beginning, man. And the Word, Jesus, well, He became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son 
of the Father. There were people who could see that the glory of God had been revealed in that little baby Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, said this, The one lying in that manger was bigger than the whole world. And Simeon saw it. And many others did too. You know who the baby was? Do you know now? According to Isaiah 40, the baby was the shepherd king. The one and only, all-glorious shepherd king. That baby, he was the king. He was the king who had come to conquer all of his and our enemies. How? By dying on a cross. Conquering our sin. Conquering our death. Conquering Satan. Crushing on the cross the very head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. He was the king. He was the king who now rules with grace and power over all who trust in him. No one now ultimately able to harm his people who trust in him. But listen, that baby in the manger, he was also the shepherd. Man, he was the one who would very compassionately stoop down, who would enter the smelly, sweaty lives of broken people. And gently hold each of his lambs who trust in him in his arms against his very heart. Even the tiniest little child who trusts in, in him. Jesus would later say this, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was the one and only shepherd king from Isaiah 40. Both compassionate and also conquering. Both, both powerful and also peaceful infinitely great, but also infinitely gentle. What did he come to do? According to Isaiah 40, what what did the shepherd king come to do? Here's what he came to do. He came to comfort. Jesus Christ came to comfort every last sinner who would cling to him in faith. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, upon Jesus, because the Lord anointed Jesus to comfort all. Who mourn? Man, you come to Jesus today just as you are a mourning sinner, broken sinner. You cry out in mercy and cling to Christ in faith. And Jesus, the shepherd king, you know what he says to you? Comfort. 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 Eternal comfort. My people, I speak tenderly to you. I have taken the punishment for your sin. I have now blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Comfort, comfort, comfort my people. Donald Cargill in Scotland, 1647. He was about 20 years old traveling with his family near Glasgow. He'd been under the conviction of sin. This is a young man who knew he was a sinner. He knew at this point in his life he was in trouble. He'd been mourning over his sin. 
It ultimately led him to despair. He thought he had wasted his life. He was for sure going to hell, and he determined to take his own life. He was going to throw himself in a river in Scotland, but people kept walking by. There was not enough secrecy, but he knew that there was a coal mine in the area with these deep, vertical, unprotected shafts. So he went to this mine early in the morning to throw himself into one of these shafts in his life. But just before jumping, he heard a voice. And afterwards, he, he didn't know if somebody had yelled it to him or he just imagined it in his mind somehow. But the words were clear and unmistakable. He heard, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. And he recognized it to be a quote from Matthew chapter 9, the very words of Jesus. And he knew that even he, a sinner, could receive that comfort from Christ. And he did. And he says his entire life, the comfort of that moment, never left him. Jesus, the shepherd king, uh, bestowing, lavishing a sinner with, with comfort, the comfort of forgiveness. Man, That comfort from Isaiah 40, that comfort has come. The shepherd king. And we're not just celebrating during this Advent, his first coming, but also his second, when Jesus returns again. And listen, if you come to Christ in faith now and you receive comfort from Christ now, that doesn't even touch the comfort you'll receive when he comes a second and final time. It will be nothing but comfort for you in his presence forever. So man, may God give you faith this Advent season to trust in Christ, the shepherd king, and may you find eternal comfort in him. Lord, we thank you for your word. All these passages in the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for your kindness in sending Jesus. For your kindness, even in the midst of Israel's rebellion, to to prophesy about a coming comfort. This shepherd king, that even then, even there we see grace, we see sinners, and yet you speak a word of promise, a word of hope. And you, Lord God, then fulfilled the promise and sent your son Father, grant us faith. Help us to trust. Help us to follow. Father, help us to find comfort in Christ. Whatever it is we're now going through, whatever it is, Lord God, I just pray now for this body, whatever it is people are now going through, Father, I pray that in Christ they would sense your eternal comfort. That no matter what they go through, walking through water or walking through fire, that they would know The God of all comfort is with them. And you, God, will comfort us in all of our afflictions. We thank you, Father, for your kindness. In the name of Jesus, amen.